All right, guys, so we are starting into Genesis chapter 6, and um, we arrive here today at this opening of the this saga of Noah, this huge character in God's redemptive story and God's redemptive plan, beginning in Genesis chapter 6. It's kind of the opening, if you will, of this great flood narrative uh, that will unfold before us over the next several chapters. Uh, really, it's a continuation, though, of um, from Genesis chapter 5. You'll recall Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, starts off by saying this is the book of the generations of Adam. And then when you get down to the end of chapter 5, you see that introduction there of Noah and his three sons. So this is really a continuation of this larger section. But, but this particular chapter begins to turn the corner and give us a more expansive view of Noah's story and what unfolds there and and like I said, in this great portion of God's overall redemptive plan and purpose. Um, it's really not an understatement, I think, to say that you enter into this section of Genesis and it's probably one of the more famous, if not maybe the most famous uh, story uh, in the Bible. Um, you can get wallpaper and uh, nursery decorations and you can see all kinds of cartoons. And I mean, all throughout you know history, there's been... A lot of attention and focus, both good and bad, around this saga of God's plan in, um, in really destroying the earth through flood. And of course, it's not, not only is it popular or well-known, but it's also not lacking in controversy. And um, it's been one of those passages that uh, many have used to really denigrate the veracity of God's word and to talk about how this and that is not possible and, and those kinds of things. So it, it, it's really a central section in Genesis that is fraught with uh, no small amount of controversy and debate um, and contention even. And literally, um, and you'll pardon the pun here, but literally these first four verses open the floodgates. Of some of that controversy, um, these first four verses, uh, Alan Ross says it this way. He says, this present section of Genesis has been the subject of debate for centuries, most scholars considering it to be one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the Pentateuch. So I read that and I was like, all right, I'm really excited about having to teach on what has been, <laughs> by most scholars' opinion, one of the most difficult passages in the scripture to interpret. I think that when you come to um, a section like this, particularly the first four verses, but really um, the second four, verses five to eight, have a little bit of um, uh, controversy, if you will, in them. They, they, there's a few verses in there that I, I know that you'll probably recognize that um, can be used to uh, really call God's character or purposes into question, um, and, and, and so... Or, or call, call his, the consistency of his character as it's revealed in, in Scripture into question, if you will. Um, I, I think that, it, as you know, if we, if we approach, as we would approach any passage of Scripture, but even particularly passages like this where um, it's known that there's been wide debate and discussion um, and really disagreement amongst faithful people, that we have to approach these matters with a certain amount of humility and and really not uh, attempting to be overly dogmatic on any fine points of uh, understanding or interpretation. 
And, um, but just do our best to deal faithfully with the text as it's laid out before us and, and, um, and try to land somewhere with it. But just knowing that um, there's been widespread discussion and debate and nuanced understanding of what some of these um, verses mean and what some of the, the um, terms and whatnot in these verses are talking about. And we'll talk a little bit more about that today. I, I can't tell you that I'm, I'm fully prepared to do a full circle around this section, um, so we may pick up uh, more of this next week. I've done quite a bit of reading, um, but like I said, um, th- there's, I'm not nearly enough, I don't feel like, and, um, but I think I do have a pretty good understanding of the, um, the main arguments that are made for the various positions of these first few verses, but let's just read, we'll read all of uh, the first eight verses, we're going to focus most of our attention on the first four um, but let's read the first eight verses for the, this, the broader context in Genesis chapter 6, and we'll get started with the, the study. It says in verse 1, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So zeroing in on the first four verses here in this chapter, we are immediately introduced to the sons of God, the sons of God, and then this other term, the Nephilim. So Much of the controversy, or much of the debate, if you will, I don't want to necessarily overuse the term controversy, but much of the debate and discussion centers around the identification or the understanding of who were the sons of God, who saw the daughters of men and were attracted to them and took them as wives, as many as they chose. And then the subsequent reference to the Nephilim, these men of old, men of renown, uh, who were on the earth at that time and also afterwards. So... Those are the questions that I would put before us, and and I I just am curious, has anyone spent much time in study around this section of Scripture, and has really thought through that, and has a strong sense of who who this is referring to? I've tried, and I'm totally confused. Okay. In Job 1, 6, that's the only other place that makes a reference to the sons of God. Right. Yeah. Well, if you go back to the end of chapter 4, at that time the men began to call on the, uh, on the name of the Lord. Were these not, if you go back to the reference in Romans, were these not then the family of God that they're talking about? Yeah, but look, this negative. Look at, look at what it says about them. They, they weren't good people. So there's, there's, there's kind of right here, there's two... 
two of the primary views, which this kind of goes back to the, the thing that you guys mentioned last week about, remember, taking a walk, and you guys have taken walks before and not spoken to each other, and we wanted to have a whole section on this. Here you are, you know, talking about two opposing views. I'm kidding. Um, but but you, guys are, you guys are sort of tapping into what are two prominent views that are different, and we'll, I'll, I'll kind of put a little more um, specific... Um, definition around that in just a moment in terms of you know kind of spelling it out in, in some some straightforward terms but but that's those are good uh, highlights to to point out any anybody else have any other thoughts on on the sons of God who were attracted to the daughters of men well some people apparently say sons of God are the angels okay mm-hmm yeah, so there is a there is a view. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to get to the views. I want to get feedback from you first. So we've got fallen angels. We've got uh, men who, would you say, what you were saying before when you were referencing the end of chapter 4, would be sort of um, men who called upon the name of the Lord, godly men, faithful men, um, and that, that's, that designation was given to them. They're of the line of Seth, if you will. Okay. Um, so you've got fallen angels as one possibility. Okay, so the, now you're talking about sons of Cain, if you want to go with that moniker, sons of Seth who corrupted themselves is another possibility, or fallen angels. Um, okay, so you guys are you're, you're hitting on all cylinders here pretty much. Um, the only nuance I would say is that um, when you talk about fallen angels, would you say it would be literally angels, or would you say it would be fallen angels or demons sort of possessing men, because that's another variant of that view. So there are those. So let me just kind of, let me kind of paint this out for us. Um, of the views that, well, th- there are some. <laughs> I just want to make sure no one has this view, and if you do, uh, I'll probably have to read up on this a little bit more to have a, uh, an informed discussion. But there is a popular unbiblical view um, that the Nephilim are space aliens, um, so I'm just wanting to know if anyone wants to jump on that bandwagon before we move forward. Um, I don't have much to say about that, but if you're in that camp, I'll try to do some reading and we can have an informed conversation at another time. But that is true. There is a, there is a view out there that some people would hold. that. Uh, too many that's right. <laughs> okay, so there is, there is the, the reference to giants, which would go to the numbers passage, where the Nephilim are referenced in Numbers, chapter 13, I believe, um, when uh, the spies went into Canaan and came back and gave a report, and um, ten of the spies gave a bad report and said, the Nephilim are there, they're giant, we're like grasshoppers to them, and they were, there was fear, they were struck by fear. And so there's that reference to the Nephilim um, in that section of Scripture as well, um, in that, that key portion of, of this text where they're, looking to enter the promised land. So, um, so it, it, when you think about the sort of the biblical views, or the views that have um, you know, wide biblical support that are, are argued, if you will, the views that are argued from biblical context and are not you know, uh, aliens, space alien types of arguments, um, there are about four primary views, okay? Um, some believe that they that there were these these um, 
sons of God were fallen angels that bred with women and that resulted in giants, the giants that were called the Nephilim. Some believe that the sons of God were the result of fallen angels who overtook ungodly men and bred with women. So there's kind of the variant of the fallen angels view that it was actually human um, um, relations that took place, but it was demonic um, possession, full overtaking of, of men. And then some believe that uh, the Sethites, the line of Seth, descendants of Adam's son Seth, that um, it was that line that um, you know, sort of corrupted themselves. They were the line that replaced Abel, so they were the, the sort of the righteous line, a representative of the, of the, the sons of, the, of righteousness. And this represents um, the corruption of the line of Seth. And really, it fits within the context of this increasing corruption on the earth. I mean, and, and there's no question that that's an, uh, a theme of this section. That's, that's not even debatable. That's really um, a major point of this section. So, so you have, let me just kind of, uh, draw this out. You have the fallen angels view, which is angels, like spirit beings, who um, um, Satan and his, and his uh, fallen angels bred with human women and had offspring that were called Nephilim. And really the idea there is that it's like half, half angelic being, half human, and therefore there's this reference to these were the mighty men, the men of renown. And so it's tying into, these were sort of superhuman, a different, a different category of human, okay, because of this uh, breeding with angels. And then, like I said, there's the fallen angels that overtook men view, which would be that fallen angels possessed men and caused them to breed with women. And so the offspring would be 100% human. It wouldn't be the same as the, the prior view. And then there's, like I said, the Sethite view, which is the sons of God, were the godly line from Adam to Seth down to Noah, and the Nephilim were the fallen children who sought after false gods. Okay. And then the last view, which is a, a slight variant of the Sethite view, and it's just the fallen men view, uh, as we're going to call it, and it's that godly men, who are described as the sons of God, which might be more akin to what you, you said initially, um, godly men who took ungodly wives and their descendants, the Nephilim, followed after the false gods. They rejected God and fell far from God in wickedness. Okay, so that really kind of encapsulates sort of the, the major um, views that are argued from, from Scripture. I would say that uh, um, the two views that I think are um, the strongest would be some version of like the Sethite view and then some version of the fallen angels overtaking men view. Okay? Would not Job one six kind of go along with that type? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what couple of, there's several passages. So let's let's talk about the biblical arguments for the fallen angels overtaking man view. Okay. I think that the the Sethite view um, would be largely attributable to the I this this um, the, the meaning of Nephilim, meaning fallen ones or fallen away. And so there's, the, in, in, in the context of uh, uh, Genesis 4 and it running into this context of Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 5, the end of Genesis 5, 
end of Genesis 4, and then the, the, the uh, genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, and it running right into Genesis chapter 6, that this is just the corruption of the line of promise. Because when you look at uh, what happened in the flood, you see that the God wiped out everyone except Noah and his family. So even though you had this, this statement at the end of Genesis chapter 4 where men begin to call upon the name of the Lord, and you had this, this sense of hope in what was a really dreadful time with the, the, the line of Cain, um, we do know that that did not last, that corruption became full-on widespread, and that even the line of Seth was corrupt because everyone was judged by flood and destroyed in the flood except for Noah. Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord and was spared. So, so there's, I think that there's reasonable biblical argumentation that you could go to for that. Um, but I do think that the, the, um, the reference that, that was just mentioned about Job and, and just the distinct uh, contrast in the text, if you just kind of look at the text itself, there is uh, a, a, a contrast that's being drawn up the sons of God and the daughters of men. There's, there's an element of, of clear contrast there. And when you go to Job chapter 1, for example, um, you do see this reference there. And that reference, uh, chapter 1, verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And then again, it's repeated, a similar refrain is repeated in Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Same thing twice. So you have this reference to the sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord, Satan among them. Now, those that would argue against a um, fallen angels taking over man view of these sons of God, they would say that... um, that why would the scripture refer to sons of God in, in, with fallen angels? Why would they equate sons of God with fallen angels? And, um, and the argument, the counter-argument to that would be that the sons of God refers to directly created beings. So Adam is referred to as a direct son of God. And angels are direct created beings of God, and meaning directly created, you know what I'm saying, like by fiat creation as opposed to through natural birth processes. And so um, the argument would be that, that the, the angelic beings are categorized as sons of God, not because of inherent righteousness, but because they were cre- directly created by God, not through natural birth processes. If you go to Job chapter 38, verses 1 to 7, um, it says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, this is, this, is, this is God really setting Job right and saying, you know, where were you when I created the world? And, and it gives us reference to the presence of angels, these sons of God at creation. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So there's a reference there to the presence of the angels at the the time of God's creation of the earth 
And because, because Job is a, really the oldest book, um, known to be the oldest book written, it would have been possible that that reference or that kind of terminology would have been uh, picked up on and known um, by Moses. And so the idea here is that um, borrowing from Job primarily as an Old Testament um, reference point that it's referring to angelic beings who had fallen, that it's not a reference to good angels only because it's called sons of God. Okay, does that make sense a little bit, clear as mud, on the argument there? That's right. That's right. And, and they wouldn't have been present at the creation of the world. So, so it's, a sound, it's a sound argument. Um, it's, a, it's a sound biblical argument um, from that reference point. Now, it's also further supported by some New Testament passages. So if you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, um, it, it, this, this provides maybe a little more context, if you will, um, to how this this way of thinking about who these sons of God are is, is sort of formed up in the minds of, of those who would hold to it. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, speaking of false prophets, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and, their, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So at this introductory, these few introductory verses, you see this reference to sensuality. Um, and so there's, anytime you, you, you see, we'll, we'll look at some other passages too, there's this correlation of, of some type of sensuality or um, sexual aberration, um, sexual immorality that kind of is, is associated in these passages. In verse 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, so there's a tying the context to Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought the, the flood, a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah again, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed primarily due to sexual perversion. And what do you remember about what happened uh, before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed when uh, Lot was sort of being rescued? What happened in that, in that account? That's right. Angels showed up. And what did the people in the town want to do? That's right. So you see this connection to sexual immorality, sexual perversion, Angels. So there's these references here in this text. By, uh, so verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds uh, that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. 
Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So there's that reference point in Second Peter um, chapter 2. Um, there's also a reference in First Peter, and I, I forgot to put it down. But, but look at Jude, um, Jude verses 4 to 8. Again, similarly, Jude is, is focused on false teachers and the, the judgment that would come false te- uh, befall false teachers. In Jude, verses 4 to 8, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, crept into the church, crept into the, the body of believers unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, here's the key verse, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So you have this, the, 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 the angels who left their domain, their proper domain, so that would kind of fit with the sons of God being angels leaving their proper domain and embodying men so that they could take wives that they found attractive and take as many as they chose. And so that's, that's some other sort of biblical context for that particular position of it being angels embodying men. Now, I would, I would say that the, the most straightforward, um, and, and of course, well, let, me, let, me, let me build this out a little bit. Of course, we know there's plenty of places in Scripture and I wish I had more references here uh, for us, but maybe some of you can kind of uh, recount some of them. But obviously you have plenty of places of Scripture, particularly in the Gospels, where demonic activity, uh, when Christ comes on the scene, just explodes, right? I mean, you have the, the Messiah, God incarnate, coming on the scene. It stands to reason that the visible outworking of demonic activity would just begin to explode as this long war has, has been underway, and sort of that it reaches a bit of a fever pitch or an apex when Christ was on the earth. But you see all different uh, accounts of demon possession and what that looks like. Um, you also have other uh, references throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, for example, and in the New Testament, where um, angels appear as men. And we just referenced the, uh, the, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they, they appear as men. So... The, the argument against just the pure angel, angelic, fallen angel view, not angels overtaking men, would be the fact that, that they're immaterial beings and they're spiritual beings and how would, they, how, how would procreation be possible in that sense. And uh, it, does, it has a specific reference in Genesis to that they took wives, so it's a reference to actual marriage in that section. And we know that Jesus spoke of the fact that angels are not given in marriage, right? So that would be the argument against a pure angel, non-human kind of view, but the angelic, over, uh, the, the fallen angel uh, overtaking man kind of view has, some, I think, some sound 
biblical support. And it stands to reason that there, and like I said, going back to the text, there is, there is some unique contrast here. And if you think about the overall context of this opening section of Genesis and really where the, the narrative is going to be taking us, it would stand to reason that, that, that there is this, there's this escalation of corruption and immorality of such a degree that is unprecedented and really should astound uh, the mind. And I, and I think that it's just putting, it's putting that, that, that extensive degree of corruption. You can only imagine how, uh, how deviant um, a culture would become, a society would become, a human population would become, if there was full-fledged, open, welcome, embraced, demonic possession, and basically families and family life and family morality, social involvement and social morality, being cultivated by pure demonic influence. That's right. That's right. And I mean, we even see, you know, even see glimpses of that. Um, we see glimpses of that even in our day now. But you see glimpses of that all throughout the New Testament as well. You know, you just you think about what was going on uh, in, in some of the um, churches that, in the, the areas, the communities, the cities that Paul was writing to. Um, you can just imagine that this was, this was of a scale and a magnitude and a pervasiveness that is just unparalleled. And really the, the point of this passage or this particular section is not so much to get us overly wrapped up in who the sons of God were. I mean, even though it's an intriguing and, and important point, I mean, it wouldn't be there if it wasn't important for us to, to understand a little bit about it. But, but really the point is that the, the degree and level of sinful, wicked, complete abandonment to the works of Satan had, had escalated to such uh, a comprehensive degree that it brought about God's desire for comprehensive judgment. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, um, so when you look at these, these sons of God and you look at the Nephilim and this reference to giants... It's not necessary that they be that they be deemed giants. Um, it could just mean that they are fallen ones. That's kind of the the nature of that term. What that term means. Uh, there's a lot of confusion over the meaning of that word nephilim, and really, no one today knows exactly what it means. Um, it's related to uh, the verb series that means to fall in Hebrew. Um, which is why some would uh, allude to fallen angels as, as a sort of a contextual reference point. Or it could also be an allusion to men who have fallen away from faithfulness to God. So both of those um, ideas would fit the context. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that it, there's, no need to, there's no need to equate a, a superhuman category in the sense of... Um, almost like a Marvel Comics kind of thing, only super, super wicked human kind of thing. There's no need to attribute that textually or from the larger context of Scripture. Um, 
It could just mean that they were mighty men. They were warriors who were uh, completely overtaken by full-on demonic wickedness. And so it stands to reason that when you think of, when you just try to equate this to uh, a more contemporary historical context, when you think of despots throughout history and the degree of, of um, wickedness that they would go to for maintaining or taking or maintaining power, um, genocide and, and just complete control of people um, through violence or whatever means necessary. And you also know that whenever you start studying people who um, achieve power through force and become ultimate authoritarians in a particular culture, a particular society, a particular country, uh, invariably the history shows that these are men who also were rapacious men, who completely took advantage of women, who had many, many wives and mistresses, and who completely abused their authority in very sensual ways and very vulgar ways. So all of this kind of ties into this overall context of what was taking place at that time and what this passage of Scripture is describing for us that, that is leading up to this great judgment and really the sentiment of God and where his heart and mind is as it relates to this wickedness. So next time, what we're going to do, if anybody, does anybody have any uh, questions or follow-up comments about, about how to view this? Again, I think that um, I, I'm, I'm not willing to be overly dogmatic about it being a, the view of angels overtaking men. I think that the Sethite view has some merit too. Um, so I do think that it's a tough, a tough, a long putt, if you will, to just say it was purely angels. Um, I think there's some biblical problems with that. But um, anybody have any questions or comments or thoughts on that? Confused. It's, it's, not, it's not crystal clear. I, I, I'll grant you that. In scripture, yeah, that's it's only twice that it's mentioned. Okay. So, do you think they would have been physical men that were big and yeah, um, they weren't necessarily giants, but they were powerful and yeah, they just didn't want to conquer. They, they want to fight them. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. The, the, the reference it could have just been a, a reference to the term in Genesis attributing these intimidating. And they could have been physically imposing big people. I mean, there, there's no reason to think that they might not have been. But the point is, is that that term Nephilim does not need, need to be attributed strictly to giants, the idea of giants. I mean, Goliath was not a, considered a Nephilim, for example. So, but that's a good point, that they could have, that reference in Numbers could have been a hearkening to these mighty men, these men of renown, who were in direct opposition to to Jehovah, right? And so here you have God's people going to take the promised land, commanded to go and take the promised land that God had promised them, that God had given to them. But in that land are these Nephilim, these mighty men who would oppose us and it struck fear in their hearts. That's a, that's a very good way, I think, to, to look at that term. 
And I think that that's what often happens in some of these uh, understanding or thinking about some of these views is that if you get too myopic in looking at one particular term and making it mean something, it's just like anything else when, you come, when it comes to biblical interpretation. If you get, become too myopically focused on one single thing and then you draw a conclusion about that, then all of a sudden you're interpreting everything else around that through that, that lens, and you, you might get some things wrong. I mean, you might be a little out of focus on that. Or you may, have, you may have zeroed in on something and drawn a conclusion that's really not warranted necessarily from the text. So it could, it could be that, but it's not, it's not certain that it could be that. So I think that's a good, a good point, a good way to look at it. Question. Yep. Do different, any different denominations hold, like, specific views of these, or are most denominations kind of in that gray area with not sure? Like, um, are there different denominations that hold that it has to be this or it has to be that? That's a great question. I don't know that I, I've really okay. – I, I don't know the answer to that, if it's a denominational um, – if, if you would you would align the views in de- a denominational way, um, it wouldn't surprise me if you had some of, some of that. Um, I did read a, a reference to the, the the point that was being made, and what I read was that um, that this desire, what was taking place, what was presumed to be taking place, is with these um, these sons of God. Um, is similar to the, what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. It's appealing to man's desire to be like God. And if you look at religions, that, that is, to, to, there, there's this blend of um, this really just, I don't know how to describe this, really unnerving blend of being like God and that, that also gaining you um, sexual privilege of some kind. So you think about um, even, even Mormonism has elements of that in it. Um, but you think of Islam, you think of, uh, there was another reference, uh, Egyptian religion where you cross the river into you know, happiness, but there's always this sort of the sexual reward kind of thing going on. So it's the same kind of message and appeal to the flesh and to be like God. And then when you look at Genesis chapter 3, um, what happens? They realize that they're naked. They, 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 they immediately begin to deal with the sensual elements of human fallenness. So I, I don't, that really doesn't answer your question explicitly, but it, it's, it would, I wouldn't be surprised if there's you know, people locking in on one particular view and holding to it. So, good question. Anything else? I think that passage in First Peter you were looking for is First Peter three. Yeah, it is. You want to read it? Uh, yeah, I'll read. I guess it's four verses. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience. When God's patience in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Yeah, so another reference to angels in the time of Noah and a judgment that befell them because they violated their proper domain, as it says in Second Peter. So again, or in Jude, I guess, too. So that's, again, another, another reference point for that, that particular position. Okay, so I think we did okay. Um, with kind of tackling this. 
like I said, next week we'll jump uh, further into the text. And again, when you look at, just to give you a little bit of a, a hint, or I'll ask the question, when you look at um, chapter 6 of Genesis, starting in verse 5, what in that section do you see that you think would be controversial about the character of God? You know because you're nodding. Okay. But it does say he was sorry that he had made them. Okay, so there's there's language that's being used in the in the English in particular here. Some some versions some translations say repented. I says grieved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does that say about God? I mean, did he not know this was gonna happen? I mean what why would you be upset? You see what I'm saying? People would bring up arguments to impugn the character of God or the consistency of his authority or his knowledge or his power, I mean, that's right, that's right. It suggests that God kind of messed up and he's like, oh man, look what I did. I'm going to have to wipe him out kind of thing. So we'll talk a little bit about that um, next time. All right, let's close in prayer.